Welcome back to Sangu Stories. Living in a country covered by 99% of sea, we are closely connected to the marine world. Thus, protecting and preserving the surrounding ocean has become our mission. We have partnered with Jean-Michel Cousteau, Ambassadors of the Environment Program, and we have brought an interesting element, which is technology, to the conservation story. Taking inspiration from Cousteau's family legacy in marine technology, and after all, the world's first scuba gear to the underwater camera was invented by Jacques Cousteau, we are conducting extensive research using aerial and underwater drones to find the impact over time and finding more on how we can save the surrounding coral reefs. And today we've got Dr. Salt, our naturalist, who's here to discuss more about drone technology and what it means to the Maldives. Welcome, Dr. Salt. It's great to have you here today. We've just finished the dive uh, with Jean-Michel Cousteau, which has been incredible and very inspiring. You know, it's uh, it's great to have you here today with us after that and, and share with our listeners more about drone conservation and some of the work that you're doing and the insights to what makes you tick as well. So nice to have you here. Thanks very much, Mark. It's fantastic to be here. And it's been a really amazing week having Jean-Michel Cousteau here, um, being able to go diving together um, this morning and then uh, talking about our research all together. It's yeah, brilliant to be in the same room. Wonderful. So let's talk a bit more about the, the drone uh, conservation work that you're doing. Absolutely. So um, the work we're doing here is a collaboration between um, uh, Melissa Schiele, who is a researcher at um, University of Loughborough, who sort of initiated this program with um, Ritz-Carlton Maldives and Jean-Michel Cousteau, Ambassadors mm. in the Environment Program. Mm. And her, I guess, vision uh, for this was to create a marine technology hub. So to study the region around the Maldives, this, this region of the Carfu Atoll, in order to understand the movement of plastic debris to see how human impacts from wider afield are affecting this area. Um, and also to look for ghost nets, which I'll elaborate a bit more later. And most importantly, marine megafauna. So that's all the large animals that are seen moving in and around this lagoon here. So um, we're using drones to fly almost every day over the lagoon and looking out for these um, sort of human impacts and also for the amazing uh, fauna we get to see from the air. It's it's very exciting, and you know we'll talk more about how the the young children get excited about technology and how it, that creates more interest as well. But Absolutely. so far, how much data have you collected, and what has been your observations in that area? Sure. So it's been a really interesting program to sort of to do alongside with with the guests. So we collect. Um, scientific data when we're doing uh, guest activities and when we're doing our sort of um, research flights by ourselves. So when if you want to join our ocean drone activity as a guest, um, you meet us, meet us in the morning on the beach um, between 8 and 9.30 and we fly a drone right over the reef. Now while we're doing that, we're collecting information on any, say, incidental marine debris we see during the flight. Yep. We're also looking out for animals like rays and sharks and dolphins and turtles. And... Um, the more flights we do, obviously, the more and more we see. Um, but for me, I'm amazed at how uh, many interactions we're seeing between different species. So when we go out flying with the guests, we end up going quite low over wildlife because anything underwater can't really hear us. And we can observe from the drone and see whether or not we're disturbing them. Yeah. So we've seen turtles and eagle rays interacting. We've seen different ray species coming together. Um, recently, we saw a what we call a fever of um, of mobular rays, which is sort of a smaller version of manta rays, wow. um, swimming all in formation like geese in a massive wow. V, and that's been incredible to watch. Mm. Um, so we're getting loads of information about the kinds of wildlife that move through this area. At the same time, we're collecting data on marine plastics. Right. So 
marine plastics are pretty ubiquitous across the whole ocean. And we're trying to understand um, how much accumulates here at this spot in the Indian Ocean. Um, and we do that by surveying some of the beaches, seeing where small particles um, land. And we also survey along the reefs looking for what we call ghost nets. Okay. Um, so as we go on, we're understanding more of the distribution of these things, but also where, um, how they're affecting the region. So then that sort of opens up a, a question in my mind about, and for our listeners to understand as well, is that whilst you're, you're collecting data, you're also reacting in real time some, and, and you're bringing ghost nets out. But So that's one question. What happens to those? Mm. So you're able to retrieve some. Absolutely. So we're able to, when we fly over a ghost net, we go right on top and we take a photograph. And when you do that with the drone, you record the GPS location directly. So then we head out um, with Dive Butler and yeah. also with our loss prevention team. And we go out um, to the net directly, um, take it out of the reef and make sure there are no animals entangled. Um, and then we remove it from the reef and take it for um, recycling. Okay. So we've recently set up a um, partnership with Parley um, that here um, working with us on the island to intercept a lot of the um, plastics for recycling and also for sort of intercepting plastics that arrive here from the environment. So anything mm-hmm. that accumulates on the beaches. Um, so we're developing that recycling program for the nets at the moment, um, which is very exciting um, because Great. yeah. And 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 also the data uh, you're sharing about the, and and that collectively data goes somewhere. Does it? You know, what happens to that data? Absolutely. So um, we we're, we're kind of using um, two different methods at the moment. So we're trying to understand the movement of plastics throughout the region. And ghost nets are interesting because they're very visible. Mm-hmm. Um, so we collect the location of where they are um identified and then we use that to model uh their movement in the greater region of the of the Maldives. Right. And it's the idea that if we can show that it works here, maybe we can expand it out and further across more more uh, lagoons okay. and whole atolls. So the, the the really this is the fundamental part of the project and in the future it would be mapping larger parts of Maldives and you know and then getting a greater understanding of that and that would be the benefit for everyone to understand where that's coming from and I understand you also know where where a net would come from almost by by pulling it out of the water and you can understand which type of net it is right it has different yeah. compounds it's amazing so the um so as you say yeah this is sort of the the ground zero for this pilot project to sort of right. see where um we can how we can monitor the movement of this gear throughout the region and the Maldives is actually really unique for this because um Net fishing is, is illegal in the Maldives, which is pretty amazing considering how the size of this country and how, you know, expansively it's spread across the Indian Ocean. Um, so the regulation of fishing is actually really impressive. So to me, as an outsider, to be able to understand how that works, it's been amazing. Mm. But it's also been really useful from a ghost gear perspective, because when we find nets, we can almost be almost certain that they won't have actually originated in the Maldives. A lot of the time they are used maybe around Sri Lanka, India, even China, and they get um, washed out to sea. And just a bit of background, when we say a ghost net, something the get net has been discarded, that happens by two ways. Either the net gets damaged at sea and then the fisherman decides that it's not worth the effort of pulling it back into the boat, so they literally just discard it. Mm. Or there are large storms and then the net itself has been lost due to wave and wind action. So that's actually right. a loss to the fisherman itself. In that scenario, yeah. the fisherman doesn't actually want to lose that because that's their revenue. Yeah. So we can tell based on some attributes of the net, so the mesh size, whether or not they have weights. If right. the net has weights, it means they usually lost it by accident because if they lost it, if they threw it out deliberately, they'd take those weights off before because they're valuable. Yeah. Um, so we can tell where it, where it comes from and what kind of fishing techniques, um, were used and the kind of boat was actually used for. So, wow. so kind of a, 
uh, marine CSI. We can get a lot of information <laughs> from it. Yeah, and I think um, I, I guess what I touched on earlier is that you know through us doing the study and understanding, where you know bringing awareness to this, we're bringing awareness to the children that are here to tell mm. the parents. You know, take care of the environment, it's taking care of ourselves, right? And that's what Jean-Michel's main message has been. Absolutely. Um, and we've got actions at play with Parlay that, that remind us the, the, the bottle and bag project and our collection of plastics and also our reduction of single-use plastics in the island is quite prevalent when you come and stay with us. Uh, and then we also don't import still and sparkling water. We make it ourselves and it's complementary. So it's... I guess it's for us the message here today, bring, you know, talking with you today, is of you are one of the beacons and in, uh, in the program that you run with Jean Michel Cousteau and the Ambassador Environment Program and how we bring energy and attention to what's going on in the world through drones, through activity, which again has you know, descending stories, you know, and sort of yeah. spirals out. So, so yeah, please. Oh, that's just right there on that because um, it's amazing, sort of be part of many sort of tendrils of different sustainability projects that are really happening here um because uh for me it's really exciting to be able to work in this location because we get so much amazing wildlife mm. and um you know when we have guests uh, alongside and we're doing the ocean drone activity part of my effort is actually it's almost to um to i don't know borderline remain professional because i'm so excited to see say <laughs> sharks and dolphins yeah. and i think that and that comes across and it's amazing to have recently have our new um shark biologist um cat mason joining because right. now we can tell directly what species we're looking at mm. while we're flying over these areas and we can relay that in real time uh, mm. to the guest that joins so i think there's a lot of uh, energy around that because we're really excited to be able to do it there's nowhere else in the world doing this kind of thing and so it's a yeah. great project to be part of i Absolutely. And I, I guess that's, you know, leads into the next question about um, what brought you out to this side of the world and how did you appear in our lives here? Uh, and share us a bit more about your journey, you know, sure. and, and what brought you to this moment. Well, it's pretty, um, happened a pretty roundabout way. So I just finished my PhD in um, University of Aberdeen, um, studying orangutans, uh, which is pretty far, you know, fetched from here because there aren't many orangutans in the Maldives, although I've been looking uh, around the <laughs> island. <laughs> but we, uh, but we, the research I was focused on was looking at orangutan nests. So every single night, an orangutan builds a nest, um, and they use this to, to sleep in. Um, almost every adult orangutan has broken a major bone, so they know to make a new nest every single day so they don't fall and break anything. So you can use the nests to identify how large the population is. And during my PhD, I wrote some code to identify the locations of nets, nests in different images. Um, and I've actually adapted that to do exactly the same thing out here, but for fishing nets. Um, so in collaboration with uh, Melissa Shilley, um, I'm actually trying to expand that project out here to study the reef and see where these nets are accumulating using code that was originally written for the forests of Malaysia. Um, so... It's kind of a very, very different, but quite parallel set of research. And it was just sort of in talking with um, Melissa um, over the last year that actually ended up getting involved in this project. Because the great thing about drone research is it's such a new and developing uh, field. There's actually a lot of ability to work creatively within that. And so we can really develop ideas together. And we have our sort of grounding to the research projects we're doing, but we also have a lot of capacity to to riff and to discover. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see kind of where we can draw from in inspiration mm. to get this project. Mm. So it was talking, we were talking to Melissa and talking to you, Mark, to actually, um, that sort of led the way to 
uh, working out here. And yeah. I've been here since April. It's reopening. It's been a pretty amazing journey. Yeah, that's great. And then you get to meet people like Jean-Michel Cousteau, yeah. which is incredible <laughs> and inspiring, I think. You know. um, global warming is mm. a real threat, and you know, Jean-Michel brings a lot of attention to that just you know, through education and, and inspiring the youth and us to carry the torch, as his father had told him, which we learned uh, again yesterday. So if the sea levels rise and the Maldives may not even exist in the future, what are your thoughts on this in the next 50 years and I guess you know what is Dr. Sol's vision of that, and what you know what would the world look like? You know what what do you feel? Absolutely, it's um it's it's uh it's difficult really because um if we continue along our projected um global warming uh increase of what is it one point five degrees Celsius, then similarly we'll have a one point five to two meter rise in sea level. Now, if you look at a geological map of the Maldives, you'll see that actually the highest point is three meters, and the average is about one meters above sea level. So it's actually a really big existential threat for somewhere like Maldives and actually most oceanic islands, oceanic nations. So at COP26 last week, the, um, the Global Climate, um, Climate Change Summit, uh, um, President uh, Surangel Whips of Palau said that he put it really succinctly he said that if you continue along this path um emitting the same way we do in a sort of business as usual attitude he said you might as well bomb us because mm. that kind of puts across how existential it is the islands would literally disappear so it's something we're um getting across at the same time as doing our our beautiful sort of um research on marine megafauna we're bringing guests on board to see the beauty of this area and see um, how precious it is. At the same time, we're showing the value of actually getting involved in sustainability programs, you know, the, the difference it can make by actually powering our water villas with solar power, by actually um, recycling our water, well, recycling, desalinating the water directly from the ocean, using the resources that we have available. Because even though the Maldives is a very sort of isolated country in the middle of the ocean, we do have an awful lot that we can use directly. And I think this this project has a lot to has a lot to say in terms of showing the value of um, utilizing natural resources in a sustainable way. And um, I hope sort of through our program and through the guests staying here, they can really sort of get an understanding of that. Mm, yeah, I think, you know, the old ideas that we, you know, luxury would, you know, would be you have to sacrifice the environment for luxury. And we, we say, no, uh, it, it can coexist and there's ways around it, and you don't need to sacrifice the luxury, but you have to be smart. Absolutely. You have to be humble, and you have to, you know, lean in and, and look and see. We, and we are providing those options here. Definitely. Yeah. And there's, there's a great, um, there's a Danish architect called Bjark Engels who uh, coined this term hedonistic sustainability, which I really like, which sort of shows that, you don't, yeah, absolutely don't need to sacrifice anything necessarily to be um, luxurious or to how, you know, to make amazing structures. I mean, just look at the architecture across the island here. But it needs to be folded into the design at the real inception. You need to build with sustainability in mind. And yeah, it doesn't mean you sacrifice anything. It just means you create more intelligently. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's a great way to observe that on the Definitely. island. So moving into, you know, what we can do to reduce our impact on the environment globally. And what role do you think a luxury brand like Ritz Carlton or any brands uh, should be leading the way in sustainability. What's your feelings there? Well, so I think we have an enormous responsibility um, because I think um, in many people's minds, luxury runs parallel with consumption. And so I think we need to understand that um, it doesn't need to be, that doesn't need to be the cornerstone of that activity. It can actually be done sustainably. 
Um, and I think by shifting the focus of a lot of um, luxury activities to uh, their impacts and trying to do that in synergy with the environment is um, is really important. And also do that in a, in a tangible way. You know, there's a lot of there is a lot of greenwashing in this industry, but to actually show that we are um, working on, you know, genuinely doing actual research in this area, looking at how we can improve um, our impacts on the environment on day by day. And also, you know, a lot of guests see that when they arrive, they'll see that visibly we're making those efforts. But it's also a point to make to other resorts and other um, factors of this industry that we could show that. We are, you know, actively reducing the amount of plastic mm. we um, we consume. We're actively um, trying to reduce the amount of uh, energy um, what we what we use on the island and try to get them from more sustainable sources. And I think that puts the onus on other people. And so it's a very um, it's interesting to be taking part of that with Ritz Carlton because obviously we're a, um, a global like a uh, a top global brand. And um, I think when other resorts and other industries see that we're doing this here, um, it shows that, you know, we don't, no one has an excuse. We need to make these changes as soon as we can. Yeah. No, I mean, every one of us can play a part in that. And um, again, going back to the water scenario for one example, where if you do choose to drink our still and sparkling water and don't insist that we would import and fly in a bottle of Evian from France and sell San Pellegrino for sparkling, and and that would be reduction of carbon yeah. air, air miles or or, or, land, or, or by sea, yeah. and uh, it's unnecessary. And it's adjusting the ego around the essential element of life, which is water, and it's as simple as that. And it's hygienic and it's presented well, and we've done a lot of efforts in that way. Yeah. We're putting it through two passes and then a third filtration system, which is partnered by Nordak out of um, Sweden, which is a, 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 a renowned um, provider of, of those filtration systems. We've done the work. Um, and, and now, you know, we just need our, our guests also to play a part in that. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's so, so important, right? Absolutely. And I think that's another example of the, um, how, how luxury can be sustainable. Cause there's, um, yeah, beautiful, clean water, still and sparkling. And the guests can know that it's come directly from the sea surrounding them. So yeah. I think it's pretty, yeah, really succinct example of how, sustainability or uh, at least lowering your impact can actually be quite luxurious yeah definitely i think education and the youth and and the parents buying into it here uh we hope that we inspire the kids as they do uh, meet you uh, dr sol and you, you transform their mind into something about what they could do when they go home and how they could impact the environment i think that's the bigger message right absolutely and it's fantastic working with kids because they ask a thousand and one questions and the fantastic brilliant thing is we can't answer them or we don't know all the answers and so <laughs> having kids asking questions that we haven't even thought to you know come up with is brilliant because it shows that there is a lot of curiosity and being able to sort of get um people at a young age really immersed in their environment and seeing the value of that is is really special that's great well thanks for your time today thank you very much mark look forward to seeing you out in the water or up in the skies with your drone absolutely you. i've had the question anything <laughs> <laughs> take care thank you well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time when we discover more about the Ritz-Carlton Maldives Fari Islands.